Welcome to GradCast, the official podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. Coming to you from the other London, let's start the show. Welcome to GradCast, the official radio broadcast of the Society of Graduate Students here at the University of Western Ontario. We are here to highlight the varied research that goes on at our school. Your hosts today are Tanya Nagpal. Hi. And me, Susan Anthony. And we are speaking today with someone from my lab here in biology at Western, Yantina Toxipeus. Hi. Hi. So, please tell us a bit about, I, I hear we're going to hear about insects and freezing and I think a lot of people kind of have that question is where do the bugs go in the winter and why do all of a sudden we see them in the spring? That's a, that's a good question. Um, Thank you. So <laughs> <laughs> surprisingly, uh, there are some insects that migrate to get away from the winter, like the monarch butterfly, but a lot of insects stay here over the winter, uh, hibernating in the soil or under the snow, uh, and so they have to survive temperatures below zero for several months of the year that can be kind of stressful because they don't they can't produce their own heat they don't stay well some of them come inside i know that because i've had a few of my house but so they actually how do they survive these low temperatures so how insects survive low temperatures is still something we're figuring out um one of the big problems with overwintering is the risk of freezing right so once once you get below zero, water can freeze. Insects are mostly water. So like if, you can, if, you, if you think about when you, if you leave your beer in the freezer for too long uh, and, it, and it freezes, your beer bottle is going to break, right? Because water expands when it freezes. If that happens inside an insect, that is a pretty rough situation. <laughs> uh, so lots of insects avoid freezing. They accumulate special molecules to uh, depress the freezing point of their, of their blood. Uh, and then there are insects that I study that survive uh, being frozen solid, which is pretty amazing. Okay, that's kind of crazy because you did just say that it'll explode like our beer freezer, our freezer beer, which I've, sadly we've all experienced at some point. Actually, champagne once too because I'm classy like that. But um, so, so you're saying so these okay, these insects can actually freeze solid, like just a little bit, or are they like rock hard, or? like? 80% of their body water can be converted to ice. Okay. And do, do they do it? So you say overwintering. That's the whole winter. That's the whole winter. Once they, uh, So they may stay frozen solid if it's cold enough. Although if it warms up and cools down like it did a lot this winter, they'll, they'll freeze and then they'll thaw and they'll freeze and, and then they'll thaw. And they'll do that several times uh, throughout the winter season. So it's interesting you're saying thaw. Like I'm thinking like, you know, we our food or anything like that and you're talking about live insects so afterwards once they thaw um is there any changes in like their ability to function their their just their systems in general their tissues so yes things can certainly change um from two perspectives so if freezing is damaging then when they thaw out their function may be compromised or they might need to recover a bit um unless they're dead, in which case they're out of luck. Um, but also, um, when ins a lot of insects, when they're exposed to low temperatures, um, that signals them to 
produce more protective molecules. So when they thaw out, they might actually produce more molecules to help them survive the next freeze event. Um, so they can, they can adjust uh, to the conditions. And that's sort of where your research comes into play, correct? Like you're looking at um, what they develop to um, survive overwintering then? Yeah, so we, we actually still know very little about how these insects do survive being frozen solid. So I'm trying to figure out which molecules are important for it and if the insects, what the insects have to do to prepare themselves for freezing and then if they actually um, actively respond to ice formation, like if they're controlling ice formation as they freeze and if they have to do anything special during recovery as well. Um, once they thaw out again. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of exploratory research to see uh, what my, my crickets do. I work with crickets, spring field crickets. <laughs> Are very, those the ones we kind of can find around our log piles and stuff? Around, or? They, they live around London. You will hear them. They're called spring field crickets because you will hear them in the spring. That's when the adults are chirping and mating and laying their eggs. Um, oh, so the local species. They are local. So something in our backyard has this ability to freeze. That's true. Yeah. So you, you talk about molecules and stuff. What what kind of things are you expecting? Like what would it, what have other people guessed would be involved? Because it's just stuff, and they so they produce it themselves. Like they make it, or they eat it, or do they go out shopping for it? How, how do they get them? <laughs> yeah, if you see your crickets at the grocery store, <laughs> uh, they will probably be in the baking aisle finding sugars. So some of the molecules that cold tolerant insects accumulate are sugars um, and some alcohols, which we think are important for um, both uh, protecting or pr- reducing the chance of freezing in some insects and in other insects, things like sugars can actually help protect cell membranes and the proteins inside cells and things like that. So these small molecules can help protect cells against the effect of ice. Um, and they, as far as we know, they make them. So you'll, <laughs> they don't go shopping for them. And, and they don't need to um, eat anything special to make sugars, for example. Um, there are also, for insects that survive freezing, a lot of them make molecules or eat molecules that will... Uh, control when and where ice forms. So they might make proteins that can bind ice in a a less harmful location, um, or their gut contents can also sometimes start ice formation, which keeps, if you're going to convert a lot of your body water into ice, it makes sense to keep it um, outside of cells rather than inside cells, right? So it seems to be very important for freeze-tolerant insects to control ice. So I want to know how you actually go about testing this. So where are these crickets? How do you actually, um, what do you do? Do you freeze them? At what levels? Okay, so we keep, we keep a big colony of them uh, in the Biotron here at Western. And my, actually in our rearing conditions, the crickets are not freeze tolerant. We keep them at 25 degrees, long summer days. Um, and if you freeze them, they don't survive. But I can take those crickets and put them in an incubator simulating the fall conditions in London, so slowly decreasing the temperature, slowly decreasing uh, the light, and 
those crickets become freeze tolerant, right? They go into their overwintering mode. And so when I freeze them, I cool them down. We have a bunch of these amazing programmable refrigerators in our lab. And you can choose the cooling rate and the temperature you want to cool them to. Um, So my crickets quite happily survive um, at minus 6 or minus 8 when they're frozen. Uh, And then I will thaw them out again. And <laughs> which is how I figure out they survived. <laughs> um, and they're not infinitely freeze tolerant. If I if I cool them down to minus fifteen, for example, they won't recover. Um, and if I keep them frozen for too long, if I keep them frozen for more than a week, then they don't recover. Um, so it's not quite. Hopefully, they would survive longer in nature, and we're not capturing all of the signals they would experience in nature. But I I spend a lot of time putting crickets into into tubes in programmable refrigerators and cooling them down. <laughs> yeah, I was actually just about to ask because like negative 15, I mean, it doesn't get colder than that often here, but it's not impossible. So like, is there like a cricket genocide if it gets like to like negative 20? <laughs> you can tell probably, he's in history using the term genocide. <laughs> probably, probably not genocide. <laughs> um, so like any, um, like any biology, there's variation, right? So, there would be some many crickets who probably would not survive minus 20, but probably some that would. Um, and, and those are the ones that will make it through to the spring. They'll pass on their, uh, they'll mate and they'll pass on their genes to the next generation. Um, it's also possible that once they've been um, cooled down a few times or frozen a few times, they would be able to survive lower temperatures, right? So their ability to survive cold is kind of plastic. It's modifiable. So, like, this species wouldn't survive in a place like, say, like Quebec or something where it gets, like, negative 40 in the winter? Yeah, so so my, my Springfield crickets, um, their distribution is mostly southern Canada and the northern United States. So, yeah, they wouldn't survive in northern northern Quebec or Ontario. Where where are they frozen? Are they frozen in our log piles? Are they do they bury deep or are they up in a tree? Like <laughs> they they tend to overwinter uh, just underneath leaf litter layer. So under, it's kind of under, insulating. It's kind of insulating, yeah. especially if there's snow. Yeah. Uh, one of the tricky things with um, the winters in London lately is we have lots of snow melts, and so those insects lose that insulating insulating layer. But that's that's more ecology than I get into. <laughs> <laughs> that's for me to look at, right? Yeah. So okay. So then you've got them. They're freeze tolerant. And what are you? What are you doing with them? Like I, I see you. All I know is I see her in a lab coat with a mic, like a pipetter, and she looks really science-y. fancy, really fancy. And I, I want to know what are you doing? So a lot of what I do is I compare. I compare my, my freeze tolerant crickets and then the ones that are just the, the ones that don't survive freezing. And I'm looking at um, how their molecules differ. So I grind up cricket tissues and uh, submit them to a lab to do um, some fancy biochemistry uh, to get concentrations of things like the sugars and the alcohols and amino acids in them, right? Um, and then I'm also looking at, because we're interested in proteins that might be affecting um, freeze tolerance or, or, or genes, I'm also looking at gene expression. So I'll extract RNA from these, uh, from these crickets and figure out, are there any genes that they are making a lot of that could be important for freezing? Um, and ultimately, 
I'm going to try. I'll, I'll end up with lists and lists of things that might be important um, <laughs> as part of this process. Ultimately, I want to manipulate them, right? So if they accumulate lots of, let's say, the alcohol glycerol and I um, add more glycerol or prevent them from making glycerol, can that modify their freeze tolerance? Is it Im- Which part of freeze tolerance is it important for? Um, that sort of thing. So, so I just want to take a step back because this is something I remember learning about recently, although I probably should have learned this in first or second year, but it's about um, using, uh, you're saying DNA and RNA and to find out protein. So as, as scientists, we know that uh, we learned this in first year that proteins are involved with a lot of things in our body. It's what com- our bodies use to communicate. It's what our, our body uses, really. So how does looking at RNA tell us things? Like, RNA is what? Sorry. <laughs> yeah. So um, in order to make proteins, our cells have to take the DNA. That's um, we have in all of our cells. In all of our cells. And make copies of it in the form of RNA. And the RNA is like a message. So um, that RNA is taken to the sites of protein synthesis. So our cells can make proteins from the original DNA sequence. Okay. Um, so what would, why would you look at RNA versus the DNA? Oh, that's a good question. So DNA would give me absolutely everything that the cricket could potentially make. Oh, okay, right? but yeah. if I But if I look at RNA, then I'll see what is that cricket trying to make at the moment. Oh, cool. So in my freeze-tolerant crickets, are they making different RNA from my freeze-sensitive crickets? And that is a, that's a more powerful way to look at it because they should have approximately the same DNA, my freeze-sensitive and freeze-tolerant crickets. Um, do you think what they are going to be making is going to vary based on the temperature? So do you think you'll see a difference as you start to freeze them even more? I would be, I would be thrilled to see a difference. So we, <laughs> we know um, very little about what happens to um, RNA production and protein production when you freeze an insect. Um, there, are, there are plenty of examples of if you cool an insect down but don't freeze it, that can stimulate RNA production of certain certain genes, um, but it hasn't been looked at to see whether whether that contributes to surviving freezing and whether insects could even do it while they're frozen. Um, they can, some of them can actually synthesize small molecules when they're frozen. Um, whether they can make RNA, I'm not sure, um, but it would be cool if they do. Well, that's yeah. what I was asking. When they're frozen, is this like complete sus- suspended animation? Is it like the future of you know space travel kind of thing like does nothing happen do they grow do they age like what do they reproduce i don't know what, what do they make anything or are they thinking are they thinking <laughs> i mean that was <laughs> no, too deep no, a question no, no more than grad students think <laughs> oh my uh, gosh no <laughs> so so when insects are frozen um so they're certainly not moving okay because right? yeah. okay. they're frozen solid <laughs> so they can't eat um but there's still stuff going on in their cells. So when, wherever, whenever people have looked, they've found that frozen insects um, do have some metabolism going on. They are running their cellular processes at, at much slower rates than they would when they're unfrozen. But their cells are still doing things. Um, so they, could, they can be using up their energy stores. Um, and so I'm not sure if they age or not, but if you keep an insect frozen for long enough, even the freeze-tolerant freeze insects, if you keep them frozen for long enough, they won't recover. 
And we're not sure why. It could be that maybe they use up too much of the energy stores and they can't recover once they thaw. Um, there could be other time-dependent processes that we're not sure about. But life in the frozen state is not static. There is some, there is some biochemistry that happens amazingly. Uh, and um, the insects are still, they're still breathing at very, very slow rates. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Not breathing in the sense that we do with no. our lungs, but there's still oxygen coming in and carbon dioxide coming out. So overall, what is their life expectancy? Not in the lab, but outside. Outside, I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure what proportion of them survive the winter. Um, there still seem to be lots of crickets in the springs. So they're doing okay, <laughs> um, but I don't know the the rates of attrition. Yeah. So, but they they do survive winter. So, what happens when they come out of winter? And that's when they are grown ups, or what happens? So they, the, my crickets actually overwinter in a, an immature stage. Uh, okay. So just, just before they would become adults. So they, they're not reproductive. Um, but then once they thaw out in the spring and conditions are good enough for them to continue developing, they'll develop into adults and then the adults mate um, to start the next brackets. And do, do, so do they overwinter again or is that it for them? Uh, as far as we know, they only over- overwinter once in their in their life cycle. Okay. There, there are other. That's true for m- most insects we've studied, um, but in more extreme environments, like in the Arctic or the Antarctic, there are insects that will overwinter more than once because they they have to. Their life cycle takes more than more than a year. Um, so, so what other species have you looked at? <laughs> I'm curious now. Um, so I have, um, I mostly work with crickets, but I've also done some research with these um, insects called grigs. They're essentially very large crickets, um, <laughs> but they live in the Rocky Mountains, so it's um, a little more fun for the field work than going out into, into London, Ontario. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, so I've done a little, some exploratory work with, with the Griggs, again, looking at what molecules they have uh, that might help them survive freezing, what their limits are, you know, can they survive minus 10, minus 15. Um, and uh, those, those, are the, those are my two freeze-tolerant species. I've done some fly work, but flies are not very cold and therefore not very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, um I'm really curious to hear about this because Yantina here has just come back from two months away. So can you tell us a bit about how that came to be? Where were you and what did you get to do? Okay. That's a lot um, of questions all at once. Sorry. <laughs> so um, I've just been in the Czech Republic and I, I went there on a, um, a foreign study supplement that I could get with my, with my graduate student funding. And I went to work with one of the one of the greats in insect cold tolerance, uh, whose name is Vladimir Koshtel, and he runs a very solid lab in the Czech Republic. And I went there to do um, some of the work with my crickets uh, that I that I was talking about, so figuring out which molecules they have. And I also did I worked a little bit with flies while I was there as well. <laughs> when you work with insects, you end up working with flies a lot. Um, and yeah, it was a great it was a great experience. I got to do some cool research. Uh, I did a little bit of traveling, of course. Uh, <laughs> and um, it's 
It's nice to be back in a place where I hear English on the streets. So this is part of your grad work. Part of my PhD, yeah. So your PhD has allowed you to sort of do this, what we call call collaboration. Yay, collaboration. uh, Around the world. So how did you get involved with this person? Um. Do you just call we, him up one day and say, "Hey, Vlad, what's up?" <laughs> uh, so I had I had never I had never met him, but I knew his work, and my supervisor Brent Sinclair uh, knows him. So I Brent sent a very nice email, and Vladimir said, "Sure." <laughs> so once once everyone was once all the people involved were willing, then we looked at what funding was available for me to go there. Because there, there are actually quite a few initiatives to help graduate students travel. Um, and, and, yeah. And then, then the magic happened. <laughs> so you thought, it, you feel it was a worthwhile visit? Yeah, it's great. I mean, from, from the general, general perspective of traveling, like putting yourself in a new situation and and seeing how you react, um, that's, that's cool. And I was, I was very lucky to work with an awesome lab. Um, great, great people, uh, good science. And, and science works a little bit differently in Europe, so it was useful to get a perspective on how people, uh, how people operate in different parts of the world. And, well, how so? I'm, I'm curious because, I mean, a lot of us here, grad students here, have only really done grad work and university stuff here. What's it like elsewhere? Well, Europeans are more relaxed. <laughs> uh, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> um, and there's a lot, um, a lot of the, uh, at least in the Czech Republic, and I think a lot of countries in Central Europe, there's a lot of small outlets um, for a single research institute. So, like, there's the Czech Academy of Sciences, which is where I worked, but they have they have some something in Prague. They have something in Budweiss. They have something in Brno. They've got centers all over, and each center is specialized in a certain way. So I was working in the Institute of Entomology, um, oh. but there's an Institute of Parasitology right next door. And so everyone you're working with is is united in some way, and, and so there's some very well structured lab groups. Um, and then the there's also differences in like how you become a a professor or a professional academic, um, but I still don't entirely understand how it works in Europe. So it's very, I they don't know they how don't it works here. here. No, <laughs> they have something very different from our tenure track system. Um, so it was interesting to chat about that. And what was the language barrier like for you? Oh, it was, it was interesting. So um, everyone in science speaks very good English. So at work, it was, a, I was, I was in my comfort zone. Um, but in so I was I was in a, I was in the city of Budweiss, which is about a hundred thousand people. And if you're in somewhere like Prague, a lot of people speak English. Almost anyone under thirty um, will will be able to communicate with you. But in uh, in Budweiss, much less so. So um, I and the Czech language is a Slavic language, so the structure is just completely different. A lot of the words are completely different. So I learned what I could, you know, common greetings, food. I can I can operate around a menu. <laughs> um, <laughs> the word for insect. Uh, <laughs> Essentials. Yeah. What's beer? People. Okay. Oh, yeah. I, I knew yeah, you knew that one right. Yeah. That. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And every town in the Czech Republic has its own brewery, so that's that's nice. Um, 
I mean, you're Bud Weiss. I mean, I can only guess. Yeah. <laughs> somebody from there immigrated to the U.S. and made a beer of their own. Yeah, yeah. But Budweiser is where the original Budweiser is from. Oh. Not, yeah. Not, not the American Budweiser. No, no. Cool. We don't want to associate those two. So did you... So you did you get some good good data out of there or do you have like sort of new skills that you are going to bring back here and so i did, i was i was very happy with the data i got uh i learned some some fairly complex analysis um which was cool but uh which i think i can i can apply here uh, as well and um yeah every and i don't know cool to be back but i'm really glad i i went well we're happy to have you back and we're happy so much to have you talk to us about freezing insects because i I get this question a lot too is and i remember thinking it what where do things go in the winter and then all of a sudden uh we have a warm day and i'm swatting things away i'm like where did you come from I, i guess i always assume they migrated or they all died off and then other ones came in i don't know where they even came from so knowing that that insects can actually do these cool things so last question quick quick yes or no answer does this is this going to help us solve how we're going to live forever <laughs> how we're going to cryopreserve yes. humans um what we what what i do helps us understand how cells can survive freezing uh, i don't know if we will ever successfully survive humans I kind of hope we don't. I kind of hope we don't. Yeah, that's the thing. They've got they've got it nailed. Well, thank you so much, Antina, for joining us. It was great chatting with you today. Tristan, over to you. Oh yeah, Uh, Gradcast is a production of the Society of Graduate Students at the University of Western Ontario. If you were intrigued, captivated, if you will, by this interview, please. we need more people to talk about their research. The summer is filling fast. And so if you want to come in and talk about your research, maybe before you go to a conference or something, email us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. And of course, if you want to listen to more shows, actually only one third of our episodes are broadcast on the radio. You can check out our podcast, which is also at uh, gradcastradio.ca. And we're having a lot of fun over there. And we have a summer full of exciting shows to show you. So please do so. And yeah, be nice to your crickets. That's all we got for this week. If you like this episode, share it with someone. Check us all out on Twitter and Facebook. Both you can find through Gradcast Radio. You can go to our website to see more episodes at gradcastradio.ca. And if you want to come on the show and talk about your own research, great line for your CV, go to gradcastradio at gmail.com. The theme is Happy Boy by Kevin McLeod, and we will see you guys next time.